0: You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. So good to be here with you today. Excuse me for a second. Right as I come out, my throat starts to frog up. Anyway, we're welcome to Kingsway. We're in a series called Death to Life. It's week two, walking through the story of Lazarus and a book called The Lazarus Life. We still have some copies left. If you are interested in buying one at the end of this, feel free to go out into the hallway and grab it. So, I don't know about anybody else. Can you help me out? Is anybody else in here a football fan? Few of you. All right. Yeah. I know that God called me to a basketball state. But I grew up about 20 minutes north of the Football Hall of Fame. And so it's in my blood. It's literally, it's where football was literally created in Northeast Ohio. And so it's just there. It's just everywhere. It's, and it's a really, really big deal where I grew up. Well, this past week was what I like to call the Super Bowl. Because as a Browns fan for my whole life... The off-season was the only chance we had at winning anything. And so I, I, when God moved me here, it was really cool because my second favorite team was the Colts. I was a huge Peyton Manning fan. And when Peyton Manning retired, you may remember this, we got a super awesome quarterback. His name was Andrew Luck. You guys remember that? And some of you are like, why are we going here? What are we talking about? Trust me, stick with me for a second. Because a few years back, Andrew Luck, just to give you an idea, how good he really, really was. And I know we never got to see it come to fruition because he retired early. But recently, Bruce Arians was the offensive coordinator here, kind of coached for a little while and now he was recently the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, like when they won their Super Bowl and everything with Tom Brady. Well, Bruce Arians was asked, if you could create a composite of the best quarterback of all time, who would you put together? And he said, oh, it's easy. I already know his name. It's Andrew Luck. I mean, he thought that highly of Andrew Luck's talent, that that's what he said, that this guy could run, he could throw, he was smart, he could, he could coach, and he was coachable, and he was everything that a head coach wanted and dreamt of in a quarterback. Now, he said that before he had Tom Brady, but that's another conversation for another day. Anyway, so (laughs) just kidding for all you Tom Brady fans. Anyway, all right. Why am I going there? Well, because a few years ago, you may remember, we were so excited Colts fans, right? Upcoming season, chance to go to the Super Bowl. We got Andrew Luck, could turn this bad boy around. Things are going on. we got a good team, strong defense. Here we go. And then Andrew retired. You remember that? And do you remember the way you felt when you heard that? And head coach, Frank Reich, I really like Frank He's a good guy, he's a Christian man he's a pa- He was a pastor for a season Went in between his football gigs that he had And I just really like him it, Whatever you think of him as a coach, I really like him But he said this, and I quote This morning, he's talking to his team and then to the public about Andrew retiring He said, this morning we talked about the word paradox For example, <clears throat> everyone makes a unique contribution on this team Yet everyone is replaceable We could deeply love and respect and care for each individual, yet the team must come first. Therefore, when it came to Andrew's retirement, the word paradox kind of helps me. It can help us make sense of what's going on. On one hand, we can respect and honor the player, the teammate that Andrew is and was. But at the same time, we can share an excitement and enthusiasm about the team we have going forward or the journey ahead of us. Ultimately, it's not about how good any one player is. It's not. It's about how good we are as a team. And I love that he used the word paradox. My definition of a paradox, I looked it up, Google's definition and, you know, dictionary definitions are a little bit confusing. Here's my definition of a paradox, in case you don't know what it is, right? It's when two things appear to contradict each other, yet both are true. And the deeper you dig into them, you find that both are true. And I don't know if you know this or not, my whole job here on a Sunday morning is to tell you about God, to teach you about God. God is full of paradoxes. Things that appear to contradict each other, but when you study them, they're still both true. And God holds these tensions all the time, right? In the same way that we were excited for the Colts, but we were sad that Andrew Luck had left, and we could be, both those things can be true at the exact same time. We could be excited and sad. Look at God for a minute. When Jesus came to earth, we are told, told he was fully God and fully man. You're like, well, that's a contradiction. You can't be both. And yet Jesus was both. When Jesus came, we're told John chapter one, he was full of grace and full of truth. He was not, this is what we tend to do, 70% grace and 30% truth with the people that we don't like. And then flip it. And 70% grace and 30% truth with the people we do like. No, no, no. Jesus was 100% truth, 100% grace. And you're like, but that's not possible. It is if you're God. He is 100% just. And he is 100% merciful all the time. He is 100% a lot of contradictory things. He is my judge and my best friend. Now, I've realized I say that is today we're gonna to deal with a paradox in God. And here's the paradox. God loves us. He also allows pain into our lives to conform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And this is an un comfortable paradox. But I know this. I don't know where you are today, but this truth is either gonna hit you like a two by four because you're like, holy cow, I needed that today. One person in tears with me before the service. Or you're gonna say, I don't know, that really wasn't for me today. And I just want you to tuck it away in the back of your head, put it in your pocket for a day when you need it because you're going to need it. Because at some point you're gonna be wrestling with why certain things in life are happening. And if you don't have the right handles, you're not gonna know what to do with God when the time comes. So what I wanna do is lay out the teaching, biblical teaching on this. And then at the end, I'll try to give you some handles, some things to grab onto in the midst of whatever it is you go through, whenever it is you go through it. You ready? All right. So the first thing I want you to grab onto is this is a biblical concept. I'm gonna show you a verse. I'm gonna read the verse and then I'm gonna unpack the verse with you. But this is consistent from all the way since the fall, not pre-fall, but from the fall all the way until Jesus returns. So I'm gonna show you a passage in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 and 19. It says this. yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Woo! But wait a minute. Did you see it in there? Did you see the tension? Let me show it to you. Ready? Ready? God longs to be gracious to you. He can't wait to rise up and show you compassion, but you're going to weep no more. Why am I weeping? What am I crying about? If God longs to show me compassion, if he longs to be gracious, why am I weeping? Why am I crying? Now, My professor in Bible college used to say, context, Matt, is king. Meaning, I can't just take a verse and apply it to my life. I need to understand what the verse means in its context. Then I'll understand really who God is. Let's give context for a minute. Really quick Bible history. God birthed a nation called Israel. Through that nation, he was going to win all of humanity back to himself. So he took that nation and he set them up. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people, follow me and I will take care of you, I'll bless you. But if you turn away from me, if you go to those false gods, the gods of the other nations, I will curse you. And the word curse is an important word to understand in this. But basically it's a relationship that's based on God saying, I will forgive you, I will heal you, I will be gracious. But if you get away from me, I'm going to remove my protection and let stuff happen. Well, as the progression of the relationship with God occurred over time, the Israelites started looking at the world around them and we see them flirting with the world around them. I don't know if I really just want God. I need a king. You know why I need a king? Because all the other nations have a king and they look really good and powerful. So they beg God for a king and God finally gives them a king. He gives them Saul. That doesn't go so well. He replaces Saul with David. That goes much better, but not completely. David is replaced with a guy named Solomon. Solomon's David's son and he raises up Israel to this great and powerful nation and Solomon's son doesn't do so well. And he's such a bad leader that the nation, these 12 tribes, divided into two separate kingdoms. So it's called the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is made of two, or 10. The Southern Kingdom is made of two. That's relevant because as time progresses with each passing book of history in the Old Testament, we see Israel get further and further and further from God. So God, because he's compassionate, because he longs to show grace, he sends prophets to teach God's word and to warn them and to call them back. Those 10 northern kingdom nations, they get the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah goes to them and says, turn away from your idols. Now you may say, what's an idol? I don't have any idols. Did you know that people all over the world today worship idols? Idols are little statues, sometimes made of wood, sometimes stone or overlaid with gold or silver or jewels. And the idol represents something. And here's the thing, you may go to other countries, say in your travels and see idol worship, but what you don't realize is we can make anything an idol. We can make football an idol, been there, done that. We can make the success of our children an idol. We can make our jobs an idol. We can make the presentation of our family, right? We got the right house, the right cars, the right clothes, the right look, the right sports, the right programs. That could be an idol. We can actually make our clothing, as I said, an idol. We can make our spouse an idol. There's a whole lot of things we could turn into an idol. How do I know if I'm turning something into an idol? Uh, The very short version of a longer story, anything that I turn to for my joy, my satisfaction, my hope, my life, it's probably becoming an idol. I'm beginning to replace God's role in my life with this other thing. And when that happens, things are going sideways real fast. Israel turned to literal idols. But remember, every idol is attached to something. So throughout history, an idol might be over something like the weather. So I pray to this idol so that the weather will be good, so that my crops will turn out. What do I really want? I really want better business. So I turn to an idol to get the business I want, or I want to have a family. So I turn to this idol of fertility, so that that idol will bless me, and I'll have many, many children, and then I'll know that I'm fruitful and I've multiplied. The fruitful multiply—that's good. Good business is good. But when my heart is for that and I try to manipulate and control and turn away from God and to trust his provision and care, that's when everything goes sideways. So God sends Isaiah to Israel and says, turn away from these idols. And the Israelites won't listen. They will not listen to Isaiah the prophet. So he keeps prophesying of another day when another king is going to come. His name is Jesus. This suffering servant, this Messiah, he's going to come, but it was going to be a long ways off. And so Isaiah basically communicates to them, God is going to discipline you because he loves you. He's going to allow you to feel the full weight of your decisions. What happens in chapter 30, if you go read this on your own, is Israel reaches out to, I think it's Egypt, one of these foreign nations and asks them for help. And God says, you didn't even talk to me about it. You didn't even come to me. I could have helped you. I would have provided for you, but instead I'm gonna remove myself And since you've turned to that instead of to me, I'm gonna let you have everything that comes with it. And basically what happens is Assyria then comes in and basically ransacks Israel because they didn't turn to God. They turned to something and someone else to get what they really need. Now that's the context of when God says this. He's saying, look, it's gonna be a really painful season for you. It's gonna be really hard, but I long to be gracious. I long to show you compassion. And there's coming a day when I will be, and you're gonna cry out and I'm gonna answer you. And then this next verse, don't, don't go there yet. This next verse, one of my mentors, a guy named Dr. Walker shared with me, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, it floored me. Somehow I'd read that verse and just moved on. And then he read it to me, shared it with me. in a session once, we were sitting over pizza, actually in Southern Indiana, and it rocked my world. Here it is, verse 20. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Let's unpack this in reverse, okay? Let's start at the end before we get to the beginning. Remember what's going on in Israel is they've been walking away from God slowly. They didn't even see it at first. It's just been this slow fade away from God. And all these false prophets came along and said, isn't it great that we're God's people? Isn't it great that God loves us so much? Isn't it great that he cares for us? You can do what you want. It doesn't matter. And Isaiah came along. He said, no, stop, return, come to the Lord. God loves you. He wants to take care of you. He wants to provide for you. Come on. God's got this. He just got to turn to him and ask. And, and the people were like, no, 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 no. And they would listen to these false prophets. And so God prophesies. It says, one day you will have teachers. They'll be very upfront. It won't just be Isaiah. It'll be many teachers who are like revealing God and his will to you. Hang on to that for the next verse. But before that, let's go to the beginning here. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. What is bread and water? It's the two things you need to survive, right? Bread and water. How long can you go without bread? Well, it depends maybe on how much you have stored up, Right? (laughs) Let's say a month. Bread and water, maybe, right? I don't know exactly what the science says, but the whole idea here is when you're really hungry and thirsty, God is going to feed you, but it's not gonna look and taste like you were hoping. The bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Now, God gave it to you. Why did he give it to you? Because he's a mean and cruel God. No, it's because he knows that you are trading the ultimate, most important thing for your soul for something so less valuable that he's willing to feed you that something that hurts because he knows he wants you to cling to him. This is an unpopular message in America. We want more and bigger and better always. And I don't blame any of us. I do too. But sometimes God says, whoa, I gotta slow things down. You are not walking with me and I'll trade anything to get you to walk with me. Now let's go to the next verse. Verse 21, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold and you will throw them away like a menstrual cloth. Can we just all stop and say it together? Ew. (laughs) And if you ever thought, you know what? The problem is the Bible's boring. You weren't reading it right. I'm telling you, it's not a boring book. (laughs) Let's finish the verse and then I'll do my best to unpack it and avoid some gory details. All right. And you will say to them, away with you. This is actually not that hard to grasp. Remember, before all of this, Israel was listening to their idols. And they were loving it. It felt so good. It was so rewarding. And God is saying, when I'm done with this season of pain, you know what you're gonna say? I don't need those things anymore. In fact, you will take the dirty cloth and you will throw it away. That'll represent your idols because you'll look at them and you'll look at me and you'll go, he is so much better than that. I don't need that. I don't want that. It never does anything for me anyway. But God, he is faithful and true and I can trust him. Yeah, you can clap for God. Anytime you want to clap for God, you interrupt me. We'll stop everything for God. But this part, I am convinced Isaiah is looking forward to our day. Isaiah, according to the Old Testament, he had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would write. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and he'd prophesy. And the Holy Spirit wasn't in him. See, the difference between us and him is, We get the Holy Spirit all the time. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is ours inside us. It says that the prophets of old longed to look into what we have in Jesus Christ. They looked forward to it. They saw it. They kind of understood it and they longed for what we have. Isaiah was jealous of you. Man, let that sink in for a minute. Do you ever hear that still small voice in your head saying, stop, don't go there. And all of a sudden the pastor preaches and the verse jumps out at you and God says, stop, back up. Or you need wisdom. You're like, I'm not sure what to do. And you're driving down the road and a song comes on the radio and you're like, "Was that the voice of God telling me to go right? Was that the voice of God telling me to go left? And what I can see is when God is inside you through the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly you have the direction that you need for life. The teacher that you need is inside you. He illuminates God's word. He grows you by speaking to you and and showing you wisdom And this is the promise of God. Right now, things are hard, but I am with you and I will guide and direct you. That's powerful, isn't it? All right. Now, what I want to do is pause for a second, hit the pause button. Let me tell quickly the story of Lazarus in case any of you missed it. And then I'm going to bring us back to where we are at this moment in the sermon. So if you weren't here last week, we went through the story in John chapter 11 called Lazarus. That's what the book, the Lazarus life that's out there is based off of the story of Lazarus goes like this. Jesus has his disciples and he's not far off in the book of John from the death burial and resurrection that's coming. But before that, three of his closest friends, their brothers and sisters, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they, um, they reach out for Jesus Now, I made a mistake last week. I want to correct. Look, I'm not perfect. I don't walk on water. My name isn't Jesus Christ. The mistake I made last week is I told you that Jesus was two miles away. That's not technically what it says. What it says is Jerusalem was two miles away. Jesus, we don't know exactly how far away he was. So I may be wrong. Jesus might not have been two miles away. That's fine. And I apologize for getting that detail wrong. But what we know is whatever Uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are, Jesus is not there. And so they send messengers to Jesus to say, hey, Lazarus is really sick, we need you to come. And Jesus doesn't come. In fact, he waits two days before he comes. Then he gathers the disciples and he says, all right, we need to go. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples go, but he's sick, let him sleep. And Jesus goes, no, 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 guys, he's dead. He's dead. And they're like, what are we waiting for? And what are we gonna do now if he's already dead? Just, Just come and Watch. So he goes and he has a conversation with Mary and Martha and he tries to get them to trust him in faith. Do you still believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And they finally the kind of peace, you are. But if you'd been here, if, if, if you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. Just like, I get that. But do you still believe even though he's dead, even though things hurt and it's painful, even though it looks like I failed you, even though it looks like a whole lot of things, do you still believe me when it hurts? And then he walks over to the, to the tomb. And he begins crying because everybody around him is sad and he's hurting for his friend and he hates he hates what death has done to us. He says, roll away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave alive and well and maybe going, why'd you bring me back? That was pretty awesome. I'm just kidding. We have no idea what Lazarus said. I made that part up. Anyway, now the reason that's important and the the point that the author, Stephen Smith, makes in the Lazarus life is that all of us have to become like Lazarus. All of us have to die to something to come alive in Jesus. And I don't want you to get a misunderstanding of who God is and what he's doing in this world. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. When we think of crosses, we think of these like gold chains around our neck or perhaps that thing we have hanging on the wall in case you're at home, you can't see it. A cross wasn't just a symbol. A cross was a literal thing that criminals were hung on. In fact, there is some text in the Old Testament that says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The cross is called a tree over and over and over again because they took a literal tree, they cut off the parts of it, and then they hung Jesus on it. And the point of that passage is to say, when you look at Jesus, he is cursed. Well, how? That's a paradox. How can the son of God, God in the flesh be cursed? Because on the cross, he's carrying the weight of your sin, my sin and death upon himself so that he's receiving on the cross everything that this world deserves for its evil. He's receiving it so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life in him. So he receives the death. He receives the sting of death. He receives the curse of sin. He receives all the sin and he pushes out for himself life. And that's a paradox. How can something be considered curse and yet bring life? And that's the point. Now he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, then you must take up your cross and come after me. In other words, you're going to have to live for me the way I died for you. It's a trade. Paul builds on this later in 2 Timothy 2.11. He says this, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we also will live with him. Oh, so this only applies if somebody brings the proverbial gun to my head. and says, do you believe in Jesus? And I go, yes, and they pull the trigger. No, no, no. no. This applies every single day in my life, in my choices, in my actions, how I'm living for God. Am I living in a way that is honoring and pleasing with him? If I have taken up my cross and died with him every day, then I know that one day when death finally gets this body, I will also live with him. And it's convicting, isn't it? I love the way... Um, Steve Smith says this in The Lazarus Life. He says, here's the simple truth. God can use any circumstance, any tragedy, any wronged heart as an information, sorry, instrument for our transformation. No tomb is dark enough, no situation hard enough, no life broken enough, that God cannot use it as fodder for the fire of transformation. Look, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know how this strikes you, but whatever you're facing, do you believe that God can use it to change you? We are all Lazarus and God wants to kill in us things that do not need to be alive so that he could bring to life us, the us that really is us. So here's my annoying question for you. Is there anything you sense God calling you to die to so that he can call you to life? Anything at all? Anything getting the way between you and him? Anything right now you hear that voice telling you to go to the right or to the left? Is there anything that immediately God is bringing it to the surface and there's something in you that says, I don't know if I can live without that. I don't know if I can let that go. I don't know if I can give this to you, God. Because maybe, maybe that's the very idol that he wants to take away from you so that he could give you in its place himself. In the book, I love this illustration. I'm literally gonna read part of the book to you. Steve Smith says this in Lazarus' life. He says, I went through a season in my life that I thought my wife and I were happily married, (laughs) but I was wrong. We had four young sons and I was called to lead a large church in North Carolina as the senior pastor. It felt like heaven for me. A large staff... A suite of offices, my own assistant, I thought I had arrived. Because of my own soul sickness and need for affirmation, I poured my heart and soul into my work. Unaware of what I was really doing, I developed an addiction as nasty as heroin and as dark as meth. My addiction was my work. And the dark side of my own addiction was that I was applauded for working hard. The more praise I got, the more I worked. My church mushroomed which only affirmed the toxicity of my addiction. Success often has a dark side, and my dark side revealed its ugly belly in my marriage and home life. The truth was, I really didn't have a home life. I had a work life and a place to change clothes and take a shower. The tomb began to close in on me one day when my wife went to see her doctor. The doctor took time to ask Gwen, it's his wife, questions about her life as the mother of four boys under age 10, and the demands of being a pastor's wife. Then at some point during the physical examination, the doctor noticed a rash under her wedding ring. She asked Gwen, has this been there a long time? And Gwen sheepishly said, oh yes, a very long time. Then the doctor spoke words that would be a turning point in our marriage. Gwen, when I see a rash like this, it makes me wonder if there's a rash in the marriage. is there? Is there? When Gwen told me this, I barked out that the doctor was a quack. What did a rash on a finger have to do with the intimacy of our marriage? I dismissed this cry for help from my wife and her doctors as nonsense, and I went on with my life. Then, just a few weeks later, the door of the tomb came crashing down. It happened after Gary Chapman, author of the best-selling book, The Five Love Languages, came and led a marriage retreat at our church. He spoke on how we give and receive love through our five primary love languages, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation, physical touch, and quality time. Gwen and I sat in the final service near the front of our palatial sanctuary, listening to Gary teach us. My oldest son, Blake, was with us. After the service, we raced home to have a Sunday dinner. I had to get back for a meeting with our leaders at 2 p.m. because of something pressing. The season of my life was always ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. And then he said, at lunch, I asked my boys what they learned at church earlier that morning. I said to my oldest, Blake, any idea what your love language is? Blake stalled as if he was searching his heart for the answer. But he already knew the answer. Finally, he said, Dad, I know my love language. It's quality time. And I never get any from you. (laughs) About three years, maybe four years ago, I led a group of men through a men's group. Man, it might've been longer than that now. It might've been five years ago, cause I think it was 2017. And the elders forced me to take a sabbatical. I fought it for nine months. And one of my friends who was an elder at that time, his name was Jason Flint. He was going off the eldership that year. And he said, uh, Matt, I just want you to know, the last thing I'm gonna do as an elder is make sure you get on that sabbatical. You're too important to this church for the long run. And I said, Jason, I just want you to know, you go off at the end of this year, I'll wait it out. (laughs) Jason won and I was forced on a sabbatical the next year. And I'm so glad that my friend Jason did that. Well, unfortunately, a couple years ago, God moved my friend Jason to a different place. And he texted me this morning between the services. He said, I just listened to week one of Lazarus life. I'm so stoked because he was in that group, and he said, that book so impacted my life. I can't wait to hear what God does with this series at Kingsway. Because Jason and I can relate. It is so easy to look like Stephen in this story, isn't it? And look, maybe your thing isn't work. Maybe your thing is a sport, or maybe your thing is a hobby, or maybe your thing is whatever the thing is, but it is so easy. And let this be the voice of God in your life to call you back to change before it's too late. I want to show you a passage. Remember I told you Isaiah was to those 10 tribes up north? Jeremiah came 100 years after Isaiah, and he's now dealing with the two in the south, Jerusalem itself. And he did the same thing Isaiah did for them, except for while Assyria attacked the north, Babylon came and attacked the south. And because they wouldn't cry out to God, they wouldn't deal with their idols. God stepped back, said, okay, I'm going to let this happen. And this is such a big deal because after it happened, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, by the way, because we often see him just crying like, God, why won't they listen? And he wrote an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. And it's Jeremiah looking over the people who are suffering so greatly and he's lamenting. He's like, ah, oh, I didn't have to be this way. But he writes this in Lamentations 3, verse 31. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. I love that. So even if you sense the heavy hand of God in some way in your life, no one is cast off forever. God is faithful and true, the scriptures say. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's always standing ready to receive you. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. Right? It's a paradox. So great is his unfailing love for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I didn't even know what to do with that. He does not willingly. Like who can force God to do anything? I don't know that God is forced by anything except for by his love. He loves us too much to leave us stuck where we are. He loves us too much not to conform us to the likeness of His son. He loves us too much to let us chase after things that are so less valuable, so less important, so less beautiful, so less capable of helping us. So he's willing to increase pain in order to lead us back to himself so that he can ultimately care for us and bless us and help us to thrive. But I struggled with this one this week. I'm not gonna lie. I'm like, I wanna use that passage. I don't know what to do with that. This complex Hebrew phrase here. So I went and grabbed some other translations. Let me just show you how some others deal with the same text. Lamentations 333 in the New Living Translation says, for he, God, does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. It's not like God is getting pleasure out of your pain. God doesn't enjoy this. The English Standard Version says, for he, God again, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. It is not God's heart for you to experience any pain. This is why Revelation closes, says one day, one day, when we see this new Jerusalem coming down of heaven and every knee has bowed and every tongue has confessed, he will take his finger and wipe every tear from our eyes." He could always clap for God. All right. So with my very limited time left, this is going to feel like another sermon. I'm going to have to go fast. I want to give you practical advice to what to do with this paradox of the heart of your father. Ready? So when I'm going through hardship, what do I do? What do I do? The first thing you have to do is you have to discern why this hardship is occurring because that's going to depend on your approach. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a very, very brief list that I came up with, right? All right. Some examples, am I dealing with a sickness that just happens to come like COVID? I do believe that this world has been inflicted with diseases. It's a byproduct of sin, and I don't exactly understand where all those come from. But if one person has COVID and I get COVID, does that mean God's inflicting me with COVID? I don't see that in scripture. I don't know. I'll let you know when I get to heaven, but I don't think so. But what I am going to do, if I'm sick in some way or another, it's a natural thing. I'm going to get on my knees and just beg God to heal me, beg him to care for me, beg him to meet my needs. And should he decide to call me home as a byproduct of this, then would he take care of my wife and my children and my church as a byproduct? What about a car accident? I don't know, about seven, eight years ago, maybe we were driving down the road in the car and we were on thirty-six heading east, and uh, there was a big line of traffic Saturday morning. It was kind of busy, and all of a sudden, the cars in front of us took off kind of quickly, and so I took off too, and all of a sudden, everybody slammed on their brakes. Turns out about 10 cars ahead of us, there was a car accident at the exact same moment. Nobody knew it. So boom, 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 boom. I slammed on my brakes, and I just stopped inches away from the bumper in front of me, but the guy behind me, I think he was playing on his phone. Not going to lie, I don't know. Slammed into us going about maybe 20 to 30 miles an hour. He didn't stop. We were his stop. We were his brakes by God's grace, nobody was severely hurt. I think God made a mistake, right? He made a mistake that could have hurt a lot of people, but he made an honest mistake, made a mistake. I don't know why, I don't know how, but he made a mistake. But what if he wasn't distracted? What if he was drunk, right? I wanna discern those two things. In the one situation, I'm not sure that he was sinning. He just made a mistake. But in the other situation, if he was clearly doing something he was not supposed to do and he did it, what if he caused an accident? I would want to approach those two situations with God differently in how I approach it. But in both of them, I want to pray. I want to praise my way through those. What about this one? What if I'm experiencing real persecution from people who don't know God or his ways and they don't like me and so they're superimposing on me, they're mad at God? Or what if there's something that I have actually done? Or what if there's something that I'm actually doing and God is trying to change it? See, I want to think and discern and not just lump all of these kind of categories into one thing and say, well, my life is hard. I want to work my way through it. What if my spouse is sinning or has sinned? Like, I want to work my way through that in a way that comes to God with the approach of what's going on, but I want to keep a level head about me. I don't want emotions to run the situation. I have to analyze this and say, God, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Am I missing something? Am I have a blind spot, God? You know why it's called a blind spot? Because I can't see it. So God, will you bring some wisdom into my life? Will you help me to see what I can't see so that I could come to you? And if I need to repent, I'll repent. I love the way Peter says this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. What he's trying to say is, look, if you've done something and it's worth you getting disciplined for, then don't blame God for it. Take responsibility. But if you're doing the right thing and you suffer, God's watching. And he's making notes. All right, I have to keep moving for quickness. But the second one, second thing I wanna say is, I need you to remember that you are dearly, dearly loved. Three times in John 11, in the Lazarus story, we are told that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Here it is, John 11:3. 3. Lord, the one you love is sick. That's the message that was sent. In 11.5, Jesus affirms. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary and Lazarus. And then again, in verses 35 and 36, when Jesus sees the sorrow of everybody else, he weeps. And that's important. Because then all the people looked at Jesus weeping and said, oh, look at how Jesus loved Lazarus. And when you're going through your hard stuff, you will be tempted to forget that God loves you. So remind yourself. One of my favorite quotes in any of my books that I've read, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Tim Keller, I've used this quote so many times, I'm just gonna ask for grace. But in the book where he is talking about the sea being out of control and Jesus stands up and he says, be silent to the sea. And the disciples are like, what do we do with a guy who can control the sea? Tim Keller, in talking about that passage, he says this, there's a huge difference between the sea that is uncontrollable and Jesus. There's a huge difference. A storm doesn't love you. Nature is going to wear you down and destroy you. If you live long enough, eventually your body will give out and you'll die. And maybe it will happen sooner through an earthquake, a fire, or some other disaster. Nature is violent and overwhelming. It's unmanageable power that's going to get you sooner or later. You may say, that's true. But if I go to Jesus, he's not under my control either. He lets things happen that I don't understand. He doesn't do things according to my plan or in a way that makes sense to me. But if Jesus is God... He's got to be great enough to have some reasons to let you go through things you can't understand. His power is unbounded, but so are his wisdom and his love. Do not forget his love for you. And lastly, I told you last week, the shortest verse in the English Bible is John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. Well, I want to remind you today that no matter what you're facing, I want you to praise and pray your way through it. Praise and pray your way through it. Why is that relevant to John eleven thirty five? 35? Here's why. Let's go to the next slide. Because the shortest verse in the English Bible is Jesus wept, and that reminds us that Jesus loves us. When you're suffering, when you're going through hardship, God loves you. But it's actually the second shortest in the Greek. The shortest in the Greek is actually 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. I don't know, man. The only thing that's super cool. Yeah. Why is that cool? Because when I'm suffering, I have to remember God loves me. But my next response is to rejoice. Why am I rejoicing? It hurts. I'm rejoicing because I know he loves me then no matter what I'm going through, he's going to go through it with me. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to abandon me. And he promises, promises, Romans eight twenty eight I will work all things together for the good of those who love me. So if you love him, he loves you. It's all going to be okay. I don't know how. That doesn't mean everything will work out the way you want. He's unmanageable. He's uncontrollable. There's a lot of factors that go into this, but I trust him enough to worship my way through it. But then, shortest verse Second shortest verse in the Greek. Third shortest verse in the Greek is the very next one. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And pray continually. So if my soul is smashed in his love right here in the middle, I can rejoice because he loves me, so I'll keep praying. Man, now that'll preach right there. We ought to do a whole sermon right there. Let's just go ahead and start it right now. Ready? Another hour. Some of you are like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, you don't have kids. All right. And I love the way that Paul concludes this in 1 Thessalonians five eighteen, Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, give thanks, give thanks. How can I give thanks? Because God loves. He's here for you. I know it's a paradox in light of your pain and your suffering and what you're going through. I know it is, but he does. So don't believe the lies. Believe the truth. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Now with that in mind, I'm gonna close in prayer. But before I do, I wanna invite you into a relationship with Jesus. I don't know where you are in this room, but last service, we had two kids get baptized by their parents into Jesus Christ. Can we just stop and celebrate real quick? I Think that puts us at 13 for the year and maybe you're next. I don't know what you're going through, but maybe you need your Savior to go through it with you. Maybe God's calling you out of death and into life. And God is trying to kill something in you. And you need to let go of it and turn to him. If that's you, would you just do me a favor? Just raise your hand. And we got our team in this room. They're looking for you right now. They're gonna come to you and they're gonna bring you a card. They're just gonna get information, follow up with you. If you're ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to know what all it means. Just raise your hand and we'll come to you. And the rest of us are gonna pray. So we're gonna close our eyes. And look, if that's you and you're like, I don't wanna raise my hand for all these people while we're praying, go ahead and raise your hand. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you actually for being a paradox because life is too complicated for easy answers. So God, thank you for being our joy even when life is full of pain. Thank you, God, for being so merciful and kind. And yet, God, you will not let one evil thing that has happened to us on this earth go without a just dealing with it. God, we thank you for being full of grace and truth. And we thank you, God, that we could trust you. So Lord, I just pray right now for anybody who's going through it, whatever it is in their life, God, would you use this season for their transformation? Would you kill some things in them? God, even if it's not their sin, it's somebody else's sin in their life that's hurting them. God, would you kill some things in them that you wanna leave behind so they could grow and their faith and their trust and their dependence upon you? And God, I pray that when you look down at us and all of our imperfections, all of our faults and frailties and weaknesses, God, would you be proud of this beautiful gem that's being left behind in the furnace of the pressures that we face?